0: Worthy is the Lamb. Uh, I I like how Pastor Lewis gave us a new verse to Anastasis. So praise the name that focuses on the Savior that was born. And uh, Lewis, thank you for writing that. Um, so. Uh, uh, good to see uh, creativity coming out in how we approach worship and and celebrate uh, the King of Kings. If you've got your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to the book of First John. We are wrapping up 1 John this morning. We will be we will be complete with uh, our journey through 1 John, but I do encourage you to continue to go back to 1 John, to read 1 John, to draw the hope of our salvation that John offers in this in this uh, Short letter that he has written. But 1 John chapter 5 is where we will find our passage this morning. Looking at verses 18 to 21, John writes these words We know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who was born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come. And He has given us understanding that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank You for the beautiful hope that was given to us that first Christmas. The hope of all mankind, you had spoken for generations, you had spoken for centuries through prophets, through your specific messengers, pointing to the hope that you had not forgotten your promise. And then, just as you said it would take place, Jesus was born in the flesh, your son taking on our form, that we might know you. Father, we thank you for hope. We thank you for the assurance of hope that we could walk away from Bethlehem's stable, that we could walk away from Christmas, that we could walk away knowing for certain, knowing for sure that you are the true and living God who has saved us. Lord, this morning as we look at this passage in 1 John, we ask that you, Holy Spirit of God, would fill us, would speak to our hearts, would teach us, your word, and we ask all this in the name of Christ. Amen. I love history. H- history is one of those things that you just go and you read and you learn, and, and you hear somebody's story, you just find something. One of, my, one of my favorite figures in history was a man, I don't know if you, I don't, he's, you might not know who this is, but his name was George Washington. And um, George Washington, you may know, may remember, I, I don't know, you may remember, he was the first president of the United States of America. He served two terms. You may not know this, but George Washington did not want to serve the first term. Uh, He wanted to retire to his farm and get out of military, get out of the public service, but he also knew that this new country needed someone to lead. In June of 1792, as his first term of office was drawing to an end, he wrote a letter to the people of America. But it became apparent that the two... Leaders that would maybe take the next presidency, Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson, really couldn't get along. And he saw that this new country was fragile. And he saw that this new country would be broken apart. So he agreed at their request to take a second term, run for a second term, be elected again to public office. In 17, excuse me, in September of 1796, George Washington finally produced his farewell address. Rewritten, of course, to reflect on the final four years of his presidency, but once again partnering with Alexander Hamilton to, to pin the document. And in this letter, George Washington, founder of our country, first president, all the great things we could say, gave some instructions to the people in America, encouraging his countrymen to put their citizenship as an American ahead of politics, ahead of party, ahead of practice, to be be a little suspicious of those that would want to pull away from the union, arguing that our strength as a nation was found based on our union together and our support of one another and putting differences aside for the common good. In other words, George Washington saw fitting to give the people of America some final words as he left the office of the presidency. We get here to 1 John chapter 5, and I believe that John has given us some final instructions, some final words for us to look at. And I'm going to give you four words as we wrap up the book of 1 John this morning. I'm going to give you four words that we can pull in here as we try to bind ourselves together under the banner of Christ Jesus under the cross to look towards the future, towards what God has done, what we've learned in 1 John, how we go from here and how we carry on with hope and peace and joy, especially... At a time when the world is waiting and watching for God to move. They might not realize it, but they are. He says here in verse 18, We know that no one who was born of God sins, but he who was born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. The first word that I want to give you this morning is the word protection. In the gospel, we find such beautiful protection. The whole premise of 1 John is written that we would know That we would have assurance, that we would have something solid. In this passage of Scripture, today we have, we know that no one is born of God. Verse 19, we know that we are of God. Verse 20, we know that the Son of God, that we may know who is true, that we are in Him. And verse 21, we're left with a warning. We have something given to us to give us assurance that we might know. And I want us to understand the protection that we have because of the cross of Jesus Christ. Notice what he says We know that no one who was born of God sins, and he who was born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. This protection is such a big and beautiful picture of what the gospel offers. He says in this passage, he says, no one who is born of God sins. Now, I want you to dwell with me there for just a second. Anybody sin free today? Nobody? Man, we better go ahead and fill up the baptismal pool, right? I'm baptized. See, see, the gospel does not, and we've learned this in first John. the gospel does not take us away from the ability to sin. You and I are still going to sin. So what does he mean that no one who was born of God sins? Weren't you born again? Weren't you born from above? Weren't you born as Jesus said you had to be to inherit the kingdom of God? Yes. Over in John chapter 3, 1 John chapter 3, we found these words. Verse 7, little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. But the one, verse 8, who practices sin is of the devil. What John is saying here is if you are born of God, you are protected from the practice of sin because it cannot dwell within you. We have to ask ourselves, are we comfortable with the practice of sin? We have to come back and ask ourselves, are we allowing the Holy Spirit to safeguard our heart from allowing a harbor of sin to develop? And we say, well, wait, what, do you, what do you mean? You can get nitpicky here a little bit? Maybe. I'm wearing this green sweater this morning. We, we've we got, we had family pictures this morning. Every year we do a little staff greeting. It'll be in the bulletin sometime soon, so uh, watch your bulletins for those. But, you know, we had to do family pictures, so we had to coordinate. And I don't have a whole lot of green in my wardrobe. I, I, I just don't. I've got like a spring lime green um, shirt that really doesn't go well with Christmas. Um, I've got a kind of similar color green shirt that's, well, I would wear it, but it might be a little too casual for the pastor to wear on Sunday morning. So I got this sweater. That's a nice little sweater, right? You like it? You said no? Oh, oh, yeah. He said, oh, yeah. I heard the O part. So he said no. Let me tell you something's wrong with my sweater. A few years ago, most of the time I carry a knife in my pocket right here. Um, I'm from the sticks of South Georgia, all right? So some things you just don't get over from where you come from, and you carry, you carry pockets in your knives where I grew up. Knives in your pockets where I grew up. <laughs> a few years ago, I had this pocket knife that had a, a little metal clip on there. And I was walking through the church where I previously served. I was walking down the hall, and I just brushed that arm, and my sleeve right here, my cuff... I don't know if you can see this, but it caught, and it kind of tore the stitch a little bit. See, that right there is a reminder of what sin does in our life. Because if you can, if you can see, if you can't see, and just imagine with me, I've got this thread that if it goes unchecked, this entire sleeve will come unraveled. Right now, I'm in the process of managing this. You won't see this sweater a whole lot. I don't wear it very much. Truth be known, I just don't really like the color green a whole lot. But I do like the Grinch. Um, But one of the reasons I don't wear this sweater a whole lot is because the more I wear it, the more it gets washed, the more it goes through the wear and tear, the more likely it is that this entire sleeve is going to come unraveled. See, I can't treat sin that way. If there is the presence of sin in my life, I, as a follower of Christ, have to do something about that. I have to take it to the cross. I have to take it to the one who died for my sin, the one who was born. I have to take it to him because I have been born of God. Therefore, I cannot make the practice of sin something that I am comfortable with. Because while I might have been able to make this sweater last an extra three or four years by being very, very careful, your sin will catch you. And you will come unraveled. But the Holy Spirit of God protects you from allowing sin. And that's why you get uncomfortable when you find sin in your life. You'd be pretty uncomfortable this morning if I was standing up here and this sweater was unraveled up to here and it was all raggedy, right? I guarantee you my wife would not have let me out of the house. I could tell her, no, baby, it's okay. It's green. It matches whatever everybody I'll just tuck my arm behind so nobody will see it in the picture. Yeah, look, I got my green. We're looking good, right? Mm-mm. The Holy Spirit of God is going to point it out and say, no, it's not acceptable. It can't happen. He protects us from sin. But notice he gives us some other protection. He goes on and he says, not only is it the one who is born of God, um, no one who is born of God sins, but he who was born of God keeps him. Now, this phrase is very, very specifically worded. I don't want you to miss what it says here because John is pairing us with our Savior Christ Jesus in a very particular way. He is saying, if you are born from above, if you were born of God, you are under the protection of who? He who was first born under God. Notice he says there, he who was born of God keeps him. You have a savior who not only saves you, but he stands as your advocate and your protector guarding you. That is the promise of protection that the gospel gives us. over in the book of Ephesians chapter one, verse three, if you were with uh, verse 13, if you were with us in our study through Ephesians, you might remember this verse, but over in Ephesians chapter one, Paul gives us this, this phrase. He says, In him, in Christ, you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, okay, you've believed the gospel, you've given your life to Christ, you were sealed in Christ with the Holy Spirit of promise. That is how he keeps you. He has sealed you. You can't get away. You can't get out. You are in him. That's better than Fort Knox. That's a whole lot better than Fort Knox. You ever been to Fort Knox? I've never been to Fort Knox. Let me tell you what they got at Fort Knox. They got gold bars. Well, at least they tell us they got gold bars. (laughs) Government tells us a lot of things. They tell us they've got gold bars in Fort Knox. But you know what they're not going to do at Fort Knox? They're not going to let you just kind of walk in and check them out and pick them up and flip them over. They're not going to let you. That place is locked down tight. Imagine how foolish it would be for the United States government. I know you can't think of our government doing anything foolish, but just imagine how foolish it would be for the government just to let anyone and anyone and everyone just kind of walk through Fort Knox and pick up and walk around and do what they got to do, right? Foolish. They know the value of what is there, so they secure it. They seal it. They do not allow anyone to impede upon what has been stored. Neither does Christ. You give your life to Christ, he seals you with his Holy Spirit. You give your life to trust him. He wraps you up when all the glory of the goodness of God, our father, and says, you are mine. Your protection is sealed because I am keeping you. I'm going to keep you. It's a good word, isn't it? You feel like you've been thrown away before? Jesus doesn't throw you away. He keeps you. You feel like you've messed up and somebody else is just going to kind of trample over you and walk away and and use you for what they can get out of you. That's what the world does. But the Savior comes along, kneels down beside you, writes in the dirt and says, I'm going to give you my name. I'm going to heal you. I'm going to protect you. You are mine. John says it this way. He who was born of God, the firstborn, the baby born of the manger, the one who came into this world, keeps him. And then here's the rest of that protective promise. And the evil one does not touch him. Woo, yeah. Now you feel like a gold bar at Fort Knox, don't you? Nobody, he's not going to touch you. He's gonna try. He's gonna throw stuff at you. He's gonna volley attack at you. He's gonna come after you, but he can't get you because you have a sure protector, Jesus Christ. That's why Paul is able to say over Romans chapter eight, verse 31, man, if you don't know Romans eight thirty-one, just write it down. Put it in the margin of your Bible, write it in your bulletin, write it on your hand. Go get a tattoo of it. I don't care. Romans 8:31. If God is for us, who can stand against us? If we have the protection of Christ Jesus, what does Satan have to do with us? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Man, you thought that was just a cute little baby that was born in that stable. You just thought it was an opportunity to sing about the lambs and the shepherds and the, and the old holy knights. No, it was the protector, the defender, the savior claiming victory over this world. And he does it in your life today. You have protection. The second word I want to give you is the word separation. Separation. Notice what he says there in verse 19. We know, again, here comes the assurance. We know. We know we are protected. Now we know the separation. We know that we are of God. Why? Because we've been born from above. We've been born of God. And that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Hmm. You want to know what makes your protection so great? The separation that God gives you from the world. Now, I want you to notice and I want you to understand that I'm not talking about, you know, you live in this holy bubble, you know. It's not. Oh, <laughs> there's a commercial. I love commercials, man. Commercials are great. There's a commercial on right now. Uh, it's, a, it's a married couple that are standing in this like snowy Christmas scene or whatever. And... Um, and like there's there's the, the wife says, I wanted to live somewhere warm. And she says, but my husband wanted to live where we have seasons. So uh, they like live in like South Florida somewhere, but they built a snow globe around their house or whatever. So that way they could enjoy. It's not like you live in this bubble where nothing. What happens is God has protected you. He has separated you from the authority and the power of Satan. Not so with the world. See, Jesus came into this world to save the world and that through him the entire world. He didn't come just to save a select few. He came to say and bear all the sin of all mankind because he could not bear just the sins of a few without bearing the sins of all and still call himself the savior of the world and he calls himself the savior of the world. So what we have to step back and understand then is that what Jesus Christ offers us is something holy and completely different than anything else the world can give you. He, he offers you a place. He separates you. Or as Peter says in 1 in Peter chapter 2, you are a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people for his own possession. He has separated you from the throes and the waste. That doesn't mean your life's not going to you know, be miserable sometimes. You're going to hurt. Your body's going to hurt. Your soul's going to hurt. Your heart's going to hurt. All of these are reminders that this world is not all there is. The pain and the the disappointment and the anguish that you feel, the the way people use and mistreat you, the way Satan uses others to to come after you and and, and quite honestly offer attack on you is a reminder that there is redemption still to come. Now, his separation does not mean like you got saved and then you're gone, you know? It's not like you live in this other world somewhere and there's this alternate reality for Christians. That's just kind of weird, right? That's not what he says. He says here in this passage, he says, We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The separation that we are given is a separation of power. I'm talking about like government separation, executive branch, judicial branch, legislative branch. Had to think there for a second. I'm I'm not talking about, I'm talking about a full separation for who has authority in your life. When you give your life to Christ, when you're born from above, you are separated from the authority of Satan. So you are no longer what the world defines. You are who Christ Jesus says you are. You are his child. You have the ability to say no to sin. Outside of Christ, you can't say no to sin. That doesn't mean that you do bad things every single second of every single day. But what it does mean is that when sin arises, you don't have any authority or power because you're under the authority and power of the prince of the power of this air, as Ephesians 6 calls him. You are under the authority of Christ Jesus. You're under the authority of Satan. And therefore, you are in sin continually. But when you're born again, the protection that Jesus offers is a protection of his power. So he separates you from that authority. So you can say, you know what? Not today, Satan. Not today, Satan. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to honor God in my body. I'm going to honor God in my mind. I'm going to honor God in my strength. I'm going to honor God in my thought. I'm going to honor God in the way I use this world, use the things of this world to bring him glory. He has separated you to a different power. The third word he gives us today is the word revelation. Look there in verse 20. And we know. Here's another one. No. (laughs) I want you to know something this morning. Because the word of God gives us something to know. He says in this passage, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. You did not come to Christ Jesus on your own. You didn't. There were some commandments that were given over in the book of Exodus. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself any graven image. See that that second one, that graven image. The intent of that command was you're not going to make any God for yourself. And this is how we know the gospel is greater than the religions of the world. This is how we know that the gospel is altogether different. Because under no circumstance would we value by ourselves a Savior who says, give up everything and follow me. Because I'm going to crucify myself for you. See, see, we, we, we would create a Savior that would do something different, right? We would create a Savior that would say, you know, just... Pay into this, buy into this, do, do this, and, and everything. Be good enough. Earn enough. You want to know if you're successful, you've got enough money. You want to know if, you want to know if, you, if you've got good in the eyes of God, then you don't have any struggle or pain. Or, think about it. Re- religion, as the world sees it, is just trying to figure out why is the world a mess. Buddhism started because uh, Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha, wanted to know why is there suffering in the world. So he tried to figure out some way to make sense of all the suffering that he saw. While there were ridiculously poor people, while he, a prince, lived in luxury. So he decided, well, if you just sit around and think about it long enough, you'll find the answer within yourself. See, isn't that what the world wants you to do? Look, Look into you? Dig deep and find and 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 it sneaks in in some some creepy and odd ways and 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 it sneaks in and, and the way that we address um the way we address just everything in the world. I I don't want to spoil anything for anybody, and I hope that I don't. I was listening yesterday as we were driving up the road to the radio, listening to his radio, the not his radio. What is it here? Joy FM. His radio is what we had in South Carolina. Joy FM. And there's a popular song, a popular Christmas song, a popular holiday song that was on the radio from the Polar Express. Sorry if you like the movie. I'm going to ruin it for you. Josh Groban singing this song. And the catch of the song, believe in what you feel inside. That is that is Eastern false religion. Search out the self. Identify with the power. See what happens in Buddhism is the same thing that happens in and Hinduism is the same thing that happens in Mormonism is the same thing that happens in Jehovah's Witnesses is the same thing that happens in the way of the world that we're trying to find an answer here that only He can give. want to know why we run around not knowing whether or not boys are boys or girls are girls? Because we're trying to believe what we feel inside and our feelings are so subjective. And the word of God says the heart is deceptively sick above everything else. You can't trust in what you feel. You can only trust in what he has given. And yes, yeah, sometimes you feel good about your faith. And yeah, sometimes you feel the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's wonderful. But what happens tomorrow when it feels like another day and you don't have that emotional high, that feeling? You've got to go back to what you know. And that is the revelation of the word of God. He says here, he says, we know that the son of God has come and we know that he has given us understanding so that we may know him. He has revealed, and this does not make sense to the world. This does not make sense to your coworkers, to your classmates. This does not make sense to your family members that, well, religion is just a crutch anyway, and they walk away from everything because they've not been given this understanding from the Holy Spirit. We call it illumination. What is illumination? Well, it's lighting a candle, right? It illuminates the room, right? Well, see, what the Holy Spirit does in illumination is provides understanding. And we get this through, Look, notice that John pulls in the full trinity here. He's talking about the work of Christ the Son, but then he says here that the Holy Spirit, he says we may know Him who is true. He has given us this understanding so that we are in Him and we know and this is the true God, eternal life. Over in the book of 2 Corinthians, or excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says it this way. For to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit of God searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the Spirit of the man that is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except for the Spirit of God. Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God. I want you to catch what Paul's doing here so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit. John says we we know that we have this truth, this understanding, because the Holy Spirit is active in us, giving us the, uh, the understanding of who God is. It's revelation. He reveals to us, he goes on, Paul says, but a natural man does not accept the things of the spirit of God for they are foolishness to him and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is a spiritual person appraises all things yet he himself is appraised by no one for who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him but we ourselves have the mind of Christ. See, in the gospel, we have the mind of Christ. We have the revelation of who God is so that we can understand the unsearchable riches of our God and King who is our Savior, who is our protector, who himself said, you know what, this is who I am. This is a Savior that we wouldn't have made up on our own. We couldn't have made him up on our own. But he's revealed himself to us. So let me give you one last word. One last word from the book of 1 John. That's the word adoration. Adoration. And I know you're looking at your verse of Scripture right now and you're thinking, well, if you adore something, you love it. I don't see anything about love in this passage, preacher. You're not going to fool me on this one. Notice what he says in verse 21. Children, guard yourselves from idols. Ha-ha, gotcha. There's no love there. There's no adoration. He's talking about idolatry. Ha-ha, what you going to do... Look at what he says. Guard yourselves from idols. Why would I give you adoration? Why would I leave you with this word? Because idolatry is ultimately an issue of what do we adore the most? Idolatry is ultimately an issue of where do our true affections lie? How have we tethered our heart? And John slips in here and says, above everything else, when you see the beauty of Christ, when you see the wonder of the Lord, when you see the majesty of what he's done, how he has revealed himself to you, why would you not seek to serve him and love him with everything you have? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Why would you not? See, idolatry is best understood as anyone or anything that controls our devotion, our impulse, or our affection. See, we like to think of idols classically. And here's what I mean by classically. Over in the book of Psalm, chapter 115, he's talking about the the futility of idolatry. And he says, their idols are silver and gold, the work of a man's hands. They have mouths, but they can't speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. Those who make them will become like them, everyone who trusts in them. That's what we like to think of. We like to think of little, little, just hold on a second. like think of little statues, right? I'm not telling you you shouldn't have a nativity scene in your house. I'm not not saying that at all. But what happens when the physical image here becomes more important than the image that he has pressed on your heart of his Holy Spirit? When when the image... when, When the image... It doesn't have to look like a little golden calf. It doesn't have to look like an elephant head with thirty-eight arms. It doesn't have to look like uh, uh, it doesn't have to look like a, a scepter. It doesn't have to look uh, like a serpent. It doesn't have to look like what we want to think of with an idol—that was something that we make. What if it's something that we have placed in our heart that starts to drive where we spend our time, where we spend our money, how we drive our prayers? What is the main focus? That is when idolatry comes in because we are loving and serving that. More than the one who has revealed himself to us. What happens when we have a greater love for the church proper than we do the Savior? It happens. What happens when we love our our wife, love our husband, love our children more than we love serving the Lord with gladness? When everything we do is driven by decisions and the affection of people and not the one who made us in his image? What happens when we allow, the, when we allow success in the job or success uh, on, on an academic level or success on an athletic field? When we start putting these things as what is going to give us our, our, our true value, our true motivation, and who we are? Yeah, work hard. Provide for your family. But when it crosses that line and becomes what drives the heart, we're starting to adore. But in Psalm 115, right after describing all of these idols, these false images, in verse 9, he says, O Israel, trust in the Lord. For he is your help and your shield. Oh, house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Your protection, your separation, all the things that God has promised you, how he has revealed himself to you, trust in him, love him, adore him. Or maybe as Christ Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God. And his righteousness and everything else will fall into place.